Yeah. Uh. I'm coming, speaking, attacking, loving. Upset by the kids being cheated on their eating. Spitting their song for a worldwide meeting. Attention, everybody, cause we're gonna make a turning. Corporates perverting demand and supply. Manipulating people sold to comply. Their policies affecting kids' food. Politics cynical, we all got screwed. I call on the cities to stand and get ready. Bad food moving fast and better sweaty. Get the right food on every child plate before we wake up and find it's too late. Every Child's Plate, a song by Emmanuel Jarl, the South Sudanese child soldier and political leader, and featuring the lyrics of my guest today, Paul Lindley, the founder and creator of the organic and now iconic baby food brand, Ella's Kitchen. And I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers, the podcast from Seven Hills, where we hear from inspirational people with a passion to make a difference. Paul, welcome to the show. And I mean, a brilliant CV, but I bet few knew you had a musical gift. <laughs> it just goes to show you what Muhammad Ali once said is impossible is nothing. Who'd have imagined that I could have A, met Emmanuel, B, got on with him, C, created an album together, and D, wrote lyrics to a rap song. But also about such a big issue, issues that define you in terms of your commitment to human rights, I guess, bringing hope when when there is despair. Well, and through a medium that um, is the closest, a relevant medium to so many younger people that are difficult to reach by other methods. I mean, I, I, I was struck actually, but reading your um, Life in Lockdown answers, Lockdown Inspirations, is that Music is clearly um, a big part of your life. Um, I loved you pulling out um, the, the quote from uh, the lyrics from Bob Marley's War. We're confident in the victory of good over evil. It's not just it's not just any old music. This is music with a message, isn't it? That's exactly the sort of music that appeals to me. And, and you know, I think we've kind of lost it a little bit uh, recently. Um, when you look back to the 60s and 70s, so, so much campaigning and activism was done through music. Uh, it's really powerful, and let's return to it. Mm. I mean, I, I noticed um, that you described your new normal as hope, despair, hope, disappointment, hope, optimism, hope, belief, hope, action, hope, achievement, repeat. Where are we today? <laughs> well, that is basically two steps forward and one back, isn't it? And, you know, we're, we're moving forward, and that's what's important. And I, I think, you know, we, we should have a view as to where we're going, and we should sort of take that we should go at the pace that that will will get us there rather than you know sprint um we should learn to crawl then walk then uh, run as we do when we were toddlers and grow up i mean i'm i'm interested in in that word hope um ripples of hope the word of your your great hero robert f kennedy senator robert f kennedy and your new role as uk chair of robert kennedy human rights tell us a little bit about about that and i i guess First of all, let's kick off with why you've been so inspired by his message over the years. Well, I think what he did fantastically, it really resonated with me, was be able to put the way you can convert ideals and beliefs into action and that you can show how you can put humanness at the heart of power in society. You know, that's why I set up a business in the first place. That's why I've used the learnings from the success I had in that business to try and use entrepreneurship outside of business in a way. And all of that is wrapped up in how can we put humanness at the heart of decisions and actions that all of us can take every day so that the institutions, which are nothing more than a collection of people, whether that's government or business or a charity, that they reflect the people 
who are in those institutions and the consciousness that they have and the, the, the passions that they have and the ethics that they have. And we've, we've lost that. We, we've got to a point where, where democracy is as much defined by the political machines of the parties or the pollsters' numbers rather than the individuals. And business is too controlled by the need for short-term EBITDA or, or earnings per share. And it goes totally away from the fact that the heart of what a company is, that etymology of the word company is from Latin, from come and panis, with bread. It's about people sitting down together with aligned interest, aligned destination, aligned appetite for risk, and, and doing something together, the same as the word companion. And, and all aspects of modern life is moving away, I think, or I fear, from common humanity. And to, to answer your question, that's what Robert Kennedy articulated so well in his, his, his language was peppered with compassion and dignity, words like that, which is so rare with politicians, but he showed how those beliefs and those ideals could be put into action, could be put into to government and, and, and get things changed. And I've taken a little bit of inspiration from that in, in the work that I do now. And um, I think we need we need Robert Kennedy's of the 21st century. Which is, I guess, is a lot of what you're looking at with the conference that you're going to be putting on in Manchester. I mean, Kerry Kennedy sits alongside this episode. She spoke of um, of her father as having moral imagination. And you and I spoke just before we started this about how that really resonated with you as an idea. Pick up the story. Yeah. Both those two things, moral and imagination, are two uniquely human traits as I see it. Morals talk about trust and truth and belief and, and, and values, which are uniquely human. You talked about hope earlier. That's another. That's all wrapped up together. Only human beings can hope, can, can, can understand the future, anticipate the future, but know what trust is and where it is and what a set of morals that, that unite us all are. Imagination, equally uniquely human. We're the only animal that can imagine the future, imagine something that doesn't exist in the future and have the wherewithal with working with others in teams and collaborating to create that. And those two things together, when you can create something new with, with a morality or a set of beliefs and ideals, then whether that's in business or it's in government or it's in our families and our day-to-day -day life, that's what really excites me. And that's, what, that's, that's kind of what our work does with, with Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights in the UK. You know, we, we exist to inspire and empower people to make decisions and take those actions every single day that can make human rights a reality for all. Because in the UK specifically, I think, or uniquely perhaps, um, human rights as a brand has a pretty bad rap. It's, it, it, it doesn't resonate. Why is that, do you think? Well, I, th I think it's been politicized, but I also think that most people in the UK feel as though human rights is not for me. It's not about me. It's about others over there, somewhere else, that are suffering. Or perhaps they feel as though it's about the elites or the lawyers, and it's a very legalese thing, um, and it doesn't impact me in my day-to-day -day life. But if we, if we reframe that as around homelessness charities are about human rights, the right to, 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 to shelter, um, businesses are about human rights because most of us spend our working hours or uh, waking hours in work. And, you know, what happens there, how we're treated, how we treat others, what the culture is, what the sets of rules that we operate on define, you know, us. So, so that's really vital. So... Making human rights tangible for us all is a, a, a challenge in the UK. 
Um, especially now when we live at this critical moment of our, our country's history, but also world history, where there's forces of division that are creating social dislocation to not see each other as brothers and sisters, if you like, but, but, but as others and othering. And I think we've got to find ways to embrace our humanity, our extended humanity uh, more. And that's some of the work that we try to do. So we, we have an education program which um, tries to use human rights to, to give young people the confidence to understand when something's wrong and to, to have the confidence then to stand up for themselves and for others and articulate that. And we, we've got that program um, with about 4,000 students now across the UK, um, some of them doing it every day for half an hour throughout the whole of this last year at school. And then we've got this Ripple of Folk Festival, which is in Manchester uh, next year. It'll be a four-day festival, and it's using sort of artistic and cultural programs to tell a relevant and a local story about how human rights can be part of the fabric of our day-to-day -day lives and to celebrate the, the countless organizations in the greater Manchester area and across the UK that do incredible work of making those human rights a reality for all. So it will bring together new ideas with old ideas. It will, it will, if you think about it, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the best articulation I think man has found to explain our core beliefs or our, our core needs as people. Yet that declaration, and as we've just talked about, the brand of human rights is legal. It's a legal document. It's vital, but legal, legal doesn't make things happen. Culture makes things happen when legal stuff is adopted because people want it to be adopted. Because, because that's what I'm thinking in terms of, well, how do you take you know, a, a piece of prose that lives you know, in, in, in the world of high government and bring it back to the streets of Black Lives Matter marches or of modern slavery violations in Leicester. Yep. I guess that you know a lot of what you're talking about here is about people have to see this as an issue which is not going on somewhere else, but it's actually happening all around us. It, 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 I mean, I'd imagine that's the case. Yes, absolutely. And, and if we frame it in the fact that we all are defined by our humanity, not by, by the fact that we're a business person or we're in government or we work for a charity or we're a father or we're a voter of this party or... A supporter of this football team, if they are just part of us, but not us, then we will be able to find the common connections with each other far more than we, we currently do. And if we build that shared humanity into business more, we will act as we do in our private lives in business more. So that when the vast majority of people who have children kiss them in, in the morning and when they go after school and say, be good at school, or they phone their mums in the evening, or they pick their dog poos up in the, in, in the park because it's the right thing to do. Why wouldn't they do the same things in business? And the optimism is our natural instinct as human beings is to do that. But we do need to layer on regulation and rules and legislation around that so that you don't get what's happening in Leicester now or what happened with Volkswagen when they tried to change the emissions. Or you don't get, not by design, but, but, but as a consequence of, you don't get things like Grenfell because you put human beings and the empathy you've got of another human being in the decision you're making because you're basing it on ideals and beliefs in, into the picture and, and we'll get better outcomes. And that's what gives me great optimism. I think we'll have to try, as an entrepreneur tries, things that may fail as we explore the way to best create our society that, that can make human rights a reality every day for all. Um, but we have to try. 
But you, you spoke there about empathy. You spoke there about business, good business. I mean, you spent um, many years growing Ella's Kitchen as a as a purpose-led business and ethical corporation. But you've also, I think, you know, a, a lot of your story, Paul, is about somebody that has devoted their time, their career in the service of the lives of young people, uh, actually that next generation. And, you know, whether it's your work as a trustee of the Sesame Workshop, growing Ella's, being a counsellor for One Young World, but also um, writing a book, The Huge Power of Thinking, like a toddler. I mean, this isn't just about custodianship. This is because you believe there's something genuinely to learn from young people, right? Yeah. I, I you know, the, my whole book is we as adults should learn from our toddler selves. We did so many amazing things when we were toddlers that <laughs> at that age of five or six years old, we must have thought life was great. I've got another eight years to live. I've learned all of these things of how to collaborate and determination and ambition and creativity and collaboration and countless other things when <laughs> to get us to the point of five, yet we lose most of that in the next uh, 80 years as we're taught to conform and we're taught to un not explore. We're you know, we choose to have the same 10 meals a year and not explore new year meals. We choose to meet the same friends in the same restaurants or watch the same television programs, whereas every new day that comes is an opportunity to learn something more or contribute in a different way or try something that will fail and then adapt and learn from it and change it. So, that that's so i feel i think nelson mandela put it best when he said you know you you judge a society by the way that it treats its children and children you know are in, in this position where they have no legal rights like the rest of us they can't sue if they're done an injustice they have no income so we shouldn't be marketing to them for example they have less life experience and they are more exposed to the lottery of life as to which family or what community that they're born into. So we as a state, if we believe in community and in having a society that looks after its, its vulnerable most, we need to protect our children and give them the opportunity that is in each of them to exploit that to the maximum so that we can all benefit from from the, the diversity of the 60, 65 million people that are in this country and the great benefits that each of them could bring to us. And, and where do you think that passion to campaign on behalf of children? I mean, you've worked on childhood obesity issues with, with the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. I mean, where does that passion come from in your life? What, what, what kind of, what would you explain it by? I think we're a product of our experiences that we've lived in, and I'm a massive believer of the power of a lived experience. We should have, we should listen far more to the experts in any aspect of life where they have lived in what we're trying to deal with, not because they have a degree in it or they have some qualification of it. But it, I, I, but but that product of that, but then also our history and our. Um, uh, you know, our, our families and, and where, where we feel as though we've come from and, and who we're part of. And I put part of it back to a really seminal moment about 10 years ago when um, I found, my family found a marriage certificate for my great-great-grandparents, which was in 1861, so just over 100 years before I was born. And it was fascinating from a family point of view who they were and what they did and how old they were. But they both signed their names with an X on this um, marriage certificate. So neither of them could read or write, which shocked me in sort of 100 years before I was born in this country that I thought everyone could read and write their own name. But so I, it got me thinking uh, really deeply about what opportunities did they miss because they couldn't read or write? What chances in life to fulfill their own lives 
little nudges about, about getting a better job or understanding what's happening in their community and contributing to that, to much bigger things. Who knows? They could have been part of cure for cancer or something. Who knows? And so looking back through 100 years, I feel that real empathy and that real connection to, to those people. They happen to be my family. But, but I, I sort of, going backwards in a vertical, I can put that on a horizontal to people now. There are people in this country and certainly in this world today who, who don't have the opportunity to maximize their talents, that can't read or write, that don't have the, the opportunities that I've been blessed with. And I feel a responsibility to, to do something with the experiences and the networks and the ideas that I have to try and um, improve this world for my children and future children's generation. And I mean, and I suppose social mobility is is one. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people know the legend of Ella's Kitchen, your daughter not wanting to sort of, you know, use food that was high in sugar. Um, I think, you know, that's all part of the entrepreneur. But there's also another part of it, I think, which is which is your own childhood. I mean, growing up in both Sheffield and Zambia, for many years, I always wondered why you signed off all of your emails, keep smiling. Now, at one stage, I thought this must be about Morecambe and Wise, but it's not. It's, there's a political dimension to that that too. Tell, tell us about it, Paul. Well, I'll start with the keep smiling bit at uh, uh, first. So I sign off virtually every piece of correspondence with that. And I would say 10% of the time to new people, I get something back that says that's just brightened my day or that's made me realize, you know, things in perspective or something like that. So it, it's, a, it's a very human way of connecting with people, I, I think, in an inhuman sort of email or formal letter or something. Um, but it comes from, I had this wonderful childhood in Africa. Um, we, I grew up in the 70s and 80s in Zambia, which was a frontline state at the time. So we were at the center of a lot of world history. Below us was Rhodesia in South Africa. Next to us was Mozambique and Angola. It was all um, about equality of people. Um, and, you know, uh, and Kenneth Cowander, the president, did so much um, to, to fight for the, the, the rights of, of those people at the expense of his own country's de- short-term development in many ways. But um, uh, I, my father got to be able to, to, to know him, and um, he and Kenneth Cowander wrote a book to me. He wrote a book called um, Letter to My Children, uh, and he signed, he signed my copy, and he signed it, Keep Smiling, um, and I just have taken that from the age of 13 or 14 uh, and used it all the time. It sort of showed me that all these big people in my mind, these, these impressive people are people, you know, and I've had the privilege to meet all sorts of people al- along the journey in the intervening period. And at the end of the day, they're, they're people. But, but they're people, but the people that inspire you seem to be those that do keep smiling, do believe in the ripples of hope. There is something... I guess if you're joining the dots about the positivity there is there in terms of it. I mean, are those the are those the sort of the drawdowns for you in terms of the life lessons that, that, that you've taken? But they are. And I think the the, the the things that I've learned is, you know, you've got to put people at the heart of everything. You know, and part of that, when we get into the future around is AI gonna take over and what becomes of a human being when we have superhumans or we have AI in that. Well, AI predicts stuff based on probability and and algorithms work on probabilities. And the beauty of human beings is it's the unexpected that gives us hope. So that's why why entrepreneurs go into entrepreneurship. If you looked at the stats, none of us would ever do it because the odds are hugely stacked against us. But if you can find that spark that other people don't predict, and the number of people that told me not to start my business because it was going up against multinationals, or if I did, we'd have to do this with it. It'd have to make all the branding sort of 
browns and greens and pastel colors because it was about organic and I went primary colors because it was about children it was it happened to be about organic so you know if I'd listened to people who wanted to play it safe and conform we wouldn't have got anywhere that's what entrepreneurs do and that's what I'd like to do with the rest of my time what I'm doing now is trying to say entrepreneurs do that fantastically in business how can we take that thinking into other areas of society. Government just won't, you know, you won't find a government minister that has ever ex uh, uh, explained themselves with vulnerability or said that they've made a mistake. Yet that's a fundamental thing that we all know, every one of us, every day, are more vulnerable than we are sure of ourselves. And, and, and how you can communicate that um, and with your team and build on that as a positive that you you get trust and you get what together but what my vulnerability is will be someone else's strength so that if we can work as a team collaboratively we can do stuff part of being a human being is failing we make mistakes and fail every single day more, more than we succeed entrepreneurs know about that and how to adapt we need that to happen with government with society with the civic space uh, more in general and that's what i i think i've brought to my work with with the, the mayor of london and and the really exciting way that they chose an entrepreneur to do something with, lead something with public policy. And what we've done in that um, shows that's true. But when all is said and done, what do you want to be remembered as, as, as a business leader, change maker, activist? What, what's going to be the, the epitaph, do you think, in terms of the difference you've made? I hope it's something to do with he had his head in the clouds and could dream and imagine, but he had his feet on the ground and he, he, he was humble and he knew, he knew that it it took many people to make change, but you had to start somewhere and start a journey that might fail and go on. I'm immensely proud and privileged of what happened at Ellis Kitchen, but I hope if we're sitting down together in 15 years' time, that that, that is just part of a journey. That's the start of a journey. And what I've learned there, the people I've met along the way, the ideas that it's triggered in me has helped make a difference in some of these other areas so that we end up in 15 years' time with a world that's richer in, in, in opportunity, in ideas, and in compassion and kindness with people, and that I've made this tiny little ripple of hope along the way that has helped other ripples become a wave, and we've changed stuff between us. But to press you, do you think having had a business career will make that more or less likely as an outcome? I think that will make it more likely because what I've had the opportunity to do is see people for who they are through business, a variety of people. So, you know, businesses succeed because you get, you get products and services to people who want them and you understand why they want them. So you need to understand your, your customers and consumers. To build a brand, you not only need to know that, but you need, you need to validate how they look at life. That's how your brand succeeds. To build a brand, you don't start on the outside, you start on the inside and you look after your people and you inspire your people with a purpose and a mission um, that they will follow you and get out of bed every day with a spring in their step knowing how they can contribute to your mission. And then you've got to inspire and get the belief of investors because, you know, not naive, money does change the world, how it's used and how we, what we do with prosperity is important. And, you know, the idea of building a business, selling it for a lot of money um, and, and getting people on that journey to make money and do something with their money is all what business people do, which is experience that government people don't have. But at the end of the day, the, the impact of business affects people's daily lives in the micro of how they go about their lives much more than other institutions that we've created. I mean, it's funny because I, I, I think there is a, a real crossover now between the, the traditional life of a, of a politician trying to affect change and a business leader trying to affect change. I mean, Kerry Kennedy, she spoke about small groups of determined people create real change. And I think you now a lot of entrepreneurs would, would, would resonate with that. That's the ripple of hope that, that Bobby Kennedy talked about. He often spoke in his last campaign about a quote from George Bernard Shaw that was, 
some people see things as they are and ask why. I dream things that never were and ask why not. That's me. That's resonated with me since I was about 10 years old. That's what drove me to set up a company that would change the way baby food was consumed and, and everything around it in this country. And that's what drives me now, asking the question, why not? Why cannot we change this? Because I might be wrong 99% of the time, but that 1% of the time I'm right, and I bring a handful of people with me, then we can make change. We can recreate a ripple. Those ripples can break down the establishment. But but I just just to finish, um, I mean, 2020 is a year when when so much of or and, and so many of the world's vulnerability have, have been exposed, not least because of the scourge of, of coronavirus. In terms of how you feel about this year, as somebody who, who aspires to make a difference, is this a year you can really do it? Well, you could take the view, if we can't do it when stuff's thrown at us like this, when are we going to do it? And there are seeds of, of optimism, if you like, of growth of, of, of things that, that can come out of this. You know there's the hashtag Build Back Better, and that, that's been used primarily with business, but it should be used with our society and the way we do things. You know, who'd have thought that a conservative government would open the checkbook and be the employer of last resort as well as the bank of last resort? That's what they've done, and, and, and they've done so very successfully from a from a neutral political point of view, it has made a difference. Um, some of these businesses that have been able to take innovation, and, and this is my key to optimism, I think, innovation. They have been able to pivot their business models. They've been able to pivot their, their, their products to, to be relevant to post-COVID, to, to help in the short term and to sustain their businesses in the long term. And I think it's this, again, coming back to a unique humanist thing about imagination and, and trust and things, it comes back to innovation. We have this ability to innovate, and innovation comes out of hard times. And we are certainly in hard times now. They're hugely unfair to people that have no voice, that, that, that are in poverty, that six months ago were our low-skilled and low-paid people that we didn't want to come into our country. And now they're our key workers. We're thanking them. You know? and, and, and that little pivot, I don't think, will, will change back. So, so that, that capitalism will be less around the risk that, share, that shareholders are taking, that capital is taking, and a recognition more of the risk that we're all taking on going on a journey and building a business or sustaining a business. And that is a great place to leave it. Words of hope there, Paul. Thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. And I, I think just to finish on, on words for, from your book, Little Winds, Grow Down. Think like you did when you were a toddler and use that power of that imagination, free thinking, curiosity and self-confidence to do it. Join me for the next Changemakers. I got